In this episode, I share an edited version of a wonderful Future Schools panel that I shared at Guest Dubai with Russell, Kaylee, Gavin McCormack, Carl Morris, and David Harkin. I'll just let each of you introduce yourselves and you know a real quick 30-second background so everybody knows who they're hearing from. And I would love for you to spend you know three or four minutes talking about what you're doing now and why you're doing that. I mean, there's a lot of visionary people up here that are, you know, making purposeful decisions. I'd love to hear the what and the why. So we'll start with you, Russell. Okay, Russell, Think Global School. We were the world's, I think, first traveling high school around 13, 14 years ago. We create our own curriculum. We are very much anti-exams. And yeah, the last 12, 13 years has taken me to every corner of the planet. We partner with anybody and everyone. And we are launching or have launched over the last six months a teacher design studio to kind of kind of spread the DNA and help teachers adapt to the changing world, which is going really well so far. And the why is we've got a very passionate board, we've got a very passionate staff, and we do believe despite the changes is very hard and it was there was a lot of ridicule, you know, 10, 11 years ago when we, when we started out. But yeah, it feels like the winds of change are beginning to quicken. So yeah. Thank you. Gavin McCormack from opschool.co. I am the Montessori ambassador for Australia. Teacher 25 years and several years ago during the pandemic, I realized something really important. That was that I was working in a really prestigious, wealthy school in Sydney on top of a mountain overlooking the ocean with a beach and penguins on the beach. And it was all bells and whistles and babies' faces and everything was brilliant. And I was creating this content, taking me hours and hours and hours for 50 really wealthy children who half weren't attending because they were on their yacht in the Bahamas. So I started creating the content and just pushing it out online to, I've got a couple of hundred thousand followers, and suddenly I had 30,000 children in class from all over the world. So I quit my job and I opened up school with some friends of mine, and now we have about a quarter million children from all over the world. And the concept is that it's very hard to teach children in Bangladesh about how important the ice caps are when they won't ever see a wave, let alone the ocean or a piece of ice. So we decided at school to fly and travel to the most remote places on the planet. We just came back from the North Pole where we taught all these lessons on polar bears, walruses, ice caps going to Antarctica in a couple of weeks. We've got all these things happening to bring it right to the fingertips of children around the world so that the concepts which are the most hardest to kind of make tangible suddenly are in everyone's classrooms or households and it's completely for free. So that's my why. Outstanding. Outstanding. Go ahead, Carl. Hi, I'm Carl. I started my educational career about 10 years ago as a private tutor and started working with a company called Carfax Education that's, that's based all over the world, but mainly in the UK, in Oxford, and here in Dubai. I started working here in Dubai. And I became particularly interested in the homeschooling programs that Carfax was delivering and the flexibility and the personalization and the real advantages this brought to students' education. So as I kind of worked my way through the ranks in Carfax and managing the UAE office, this was a big area of interest for me. I became the principal of our college independent boarding school in, in Oxford, where everything we do is delivered one-to-one. -one. We spotted a need for, for almost standardizing the personalized curriculum because we really can only deal with ultra-high net worth when we're dealing with a one-to-one -one education, full-time education because the price is so prohibitive. So we started exploring the idea of partnering with lots of online schools and seeing how can we be the delivery, the in-person, the contact time 
of lots of these online schools that are trying to kind of automate education. What we very quickly found was lots of the students moved to us and away from these online programs because of the lack of flexibility and the lack of agility in the face of the way that the world is moving. And so we had this idea to set up our own school, which we're calling the online school. And really what we're trying to do with the online school is recognize that schooling is much more than just a virtual textbook or a virtual classroom. There's a lot of aspects of school that, that are not being incorporated into online schools. And also that there's a lot of, I think they, we were talking earlier in the, in the Metaverse talk, it's such a buzzword at the minute, and, and there's a lot of educators who, a lot of schools, let's say, not the educators, but the school leaders who jump into buzzwords and kind of go, oh, the Metaverse, let's do something in the Metaverse, without actually really thinking about the learning experience or the pedagogical value. And I think given our broad experience as private tutors running our own school in the UK, um, placing kids in schools all over the world. We're trying to bring a unique perspective to the online school that really creates an experience rather than just a delivery mechanism. So that's kind of what we're doing in the why. Thank you. Go ahead, David. Good afternoon, everyone. Have you had a good conference? Good. My name is David Harkin. I am the CEO of 8 Billion Ideas. So we're on a mission to give students the skills and belief to go change the world. And our four focus areas in education is one, entrepreneurship, because schools produce more entrepreneurs than any other profession. About 20% of students across the planet today will go on and start a business at some point in their lives. And we find that schools often do something in this space, but certainly are not strategic. And whether or not they want to be an entrepreneur, having that entrepreneurial mindset, that confidence to act on an idea, no matter what you do, we think is pretty important. So that's number one. Careers education, that's the second area of focus for us. We've been frustrated for years now about how underfunded, under-resourced, under-focused this area of education is, particularly when school's purpose is about helping a child to prepare for their future. Often you see one person in a school which might be responsible for career education bringing their view about careers, the possibilities, different jobs, and we need to really blow that up right now. So our big work in that space is about blowing up children's horizons and broadening them to the world of opportunity that we're living in. Thirdly, skills, often talked about. So we try to make this as simple as possible because when you look at lists such as the World Economic Forum, they often publish different lists every few years. But there are two skills which have been consistent for decades now, which is creativity and problem solving. And you can guarantee at guess 2072 in 50 years' time that those two skills will still be important. Do you think we're going to still need problem solvers? Yep. And creative people to solve those problems. The last area is performance and well-being, where we're trying to take some of the magic which is taught in the world of sport around nutrition, sleep, digital dexterity, brain fitness, and make that relevant for students, no matter their ambitions. And we formed a really exciting partnership with a gentleman called Sir Clive Woodward, which many of you might not know, but he's one of the most uh, phenomenal coaches on the planet in the world of sport. So that's what we really concentrate. The way that we do it is actually through different mechanisms with schools. We work with three to 18 programs, week to week lessons, courses using virtual and hybrid offerings for schools. So I think it's that flexibility which has made us unique working across curriculum in different age groups in different countries. And anyone out there looking to do more of that stuff in your schools, then please reach out. I guess the why, which is really, really important about everybody should know what makes them tick and why they do it. For me, I've never, ever met a child who doesn't have an amazing imagination. I've been very blessed to work with children across the sector, from the independent academies, young offenders, colleges, all across the world. And that's still the same conclusion that I've come up with. Every child out there has an amazing imagination. 
but every child is on a different journey with the amount of skills and indeed belief that they might have. So my big why is about making sure that we do give every child on the planet the skills and belief to go change the world. And that is our big commitment to the sector. And long may that continue. Go ahead, Simon. Thank Very you. Very nice, David. I actually quite got worried there when you're saying we're here to blow up children. Yeah, you know, I got that. I know it's a blow up the minds, but I, I think that's something that we'll get into. I'm going to start with my why. I think the why is more important to start with here. And my why, really, my, my purpose, my reason for being is inspiring schools to share their story. Why? Because every school believes they're different. And I also believe you're different, but you all say the same thing. I'm very much value-driven, purpose-driven, and schools have to adopt that. I'm not an educationist, I'll make that clear. I just about got through education. But saying that, I, 25 years ago, I did help write one of the first expert systems as part of my master's in IT that then went on to obviously form what is now AI. I'm a creative technologist by background and interest, and I run a global creative storytelling agency called Interactive Schools. We work with the best schools on the planet to get their story told. My other why, my anchor maybe, is my four kids. I've got four kids and they've all been at four schools. Why? By design. Right? They're all different. And I fundamentally believe that they have to be curious, happy and confident when they come out of school. These all guys all believe that exams are not the way. I completely agree. But we're stuck in the system. And I know later we're going to talk about some of the things we can do. So I'm not an educationist. I'm an ed tech guy, but I don't think you should buy technology. So go figure that one out. Interesting, interesting. So I actually have a question for you. I want to follow up on that. So you have four children. You sent them to four different schools. Yep. This is the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> like that's, I love that. Did you try to customize the school to the child, or was it just that you wanted to get diverse opinions and experiences, or were you moving around a lot? Or? It was. No, there was no moving. I was in the same house for 18 years. I only just moved, and that was a struggle. No, I mean, the reason it was all by design, because you realize that actually as your four children have the same kind of environment, the same background, the same opportunity really is that when you look at the nearest school that is very good to you it doesn't fit all of them and you know where my daughter went she's now a second year at university my son we pulled him out and we were not scared of pulling a child out of an education because it was not right and you know my most recent one is my youngest he's 11 we pulled him out a year ago why he started to lose his mojo right I call it that ability that spirit to thrive and so we made a choice as parents to go we need him to thrive if he's not thriving, he is incapable of learning. So that was our big drive. And then we just found the best schools in the, the area to do it. And we did send my son to boarding school for one, one term, loved it, and then we moved near the area. So If a seed doesn't grow, don't change the seed, you just move the pot into the sunshine, which is what you did. Nice, I like it. You mentioned creativity through online learning, and that tweaked me for a moment there, and this is going a little bit off script, so to speak, but... I find that a little fascinating because I think one of the things that is so critical is to try to get children this unique education for themselves. And I think, generally speaking, that's uh, you know, pretty agreed upon on the panel. How do you go about bringing creativity to a large number of students online? Yeah, it's probably the biggest challenge. It's about content. You need to have a massive amount of content. And I think we're a lot of online schools. And I think technology is the way to bring it to massive numbers of people at scale. But what you often find is that the syllabus is used as, we need to get you through this. Ultimately, we need to get you through this exam. So let's just focus on the syllabus. But syllabuses were only ever intended to be a guide. And I think what we're trying to focus on is creating such a massive amount of content that you can explore. You have this problem of self-paced learning. We experience this in our homeschooling programs that we do in person, 
you have this problem with personalized learning that the exam is on the same day every year, give or take. You have to sit that exam in summer of next year. And if you've got a kid who's powering ahead and racing ahead, what are you going to do if they finish in January? What we've always done is have this kind of balance between breadth and depth. So the idea is that breadth slows you down and depth speeds you up. So if a kid is really, really, really motoring ahead, we start to go really broad with the curriculum. So we start to explore really off-curricular topics. If they're interested in marine biology, we go into that, we delve into that, and we move around. And this is also where David's talking about the jobs of the future. This is often where kids actually discover the jobs of the future that they want to do. Like, who knew that their whole career is in medical illustration until you've gone down that path and tried it? So for us, it's about content. And they're not just about this idea of having massive amounts of content that can speed you up and slow you down. It's also about making that content relevant to kids. I mean, if you've, I'm sure we've all spent quite a lot of time on YouTube. I've maybe spent a bit too much time on YouTube. You see that the best educational content is not created by accredited institutions. If you look at a lot of the things that schools actually put out there, it's teachers in front of whiteboards, it's a bit dry, and that, that can be budget constraints, that can be slightly missing the point a little bit. But what we need to be doing is creating content that really speaks to the kids, that is delivered to them in a way that they're familiar with. We should be understanding the children and what they consume rather than saying, well, we think you should consume this. So, And we've had a lot of success with that or with, with kind of short-form educational content on TikTok. We reached over 10 million views in a couple of months, and now we're using that to define what we do in the long-form content. So the, the, the educational value of a 30-second video is very limited, but it's the hook that gets you into reading more about the lesson. did a big video on friction and, and pulling uh, two G-wagons with two yellow pages that have been folded together. And that got loads of views, and now we can hook you in. Or, or how does friction work? We can actually talk about the physics of it. So I think it's, it's about massive amounts of content and content that's relevant. Can I just chip in there? Because when the pandemic kicked in, what we did is we monitored the NPS score every 30 minutes. So we were asking students to rate the online lesson that they were going through. And when you give a 10-year-old that ability to score you from zero to 10, it's quite daunting, right? But we learned a lot very quickly. And the first thing that we realized is that we had to stop writing lessons and start writing scripts. Because what we were doing through that kind of screen is we were competing against YouTube, Netflix, any other distraction which was going on at home. The second thing that we learned was when you had two hosts, two teachers or two facilitators behind a screen, you were scoring a higher MPS score because effectively it was more entertaining and more engaging for the child and you were delivering great education content in a different kind of way. So, you know, online you need that vast amount of content, but having that engagement, I couldn't agree more. That is a hook, that is a way in. But we certainly, as soon as we stopped writing lessons, starting writing scripts, MPS went like through the roof. So... It's really interesting to hear you talk, and obviously it's, a, it's an interesting topic to discuss because it's how you define creativity in actual fact. You know, if you, I've been to thousands of schools, I'm sure we all have, and lots of teachers will be in the classroom thinking they're being creative by letting the children paint or draw or do something that's from their imagination. When you look at actually what creativity is, creativity is about agency, choice, and freedom within limits. That is what creativity is. So if you think about using online platform to engage children in a creative manner, first, what you deliver, the first point of reference, the first words that you say, have to be the most inspirational thing they've ever heard. So if you're teaching marine biology to a group of 12-year-olds, you better remember that the first words you say 
better be the greatest thing they've ever heard on marine biology, or they're going on TikTok on their smartphone to do reels straight away. So the first thing to say is to say, I'm going to teach you about marine biology. Let me tell you about the blue whale. And I'll try this with you now. The blue whale evolved from the ocean onto the land, didn't like it, re-evolved back into the ocean, leaving the dinosaurs behind, asteroid collided, dinosaurs wiped out, blue whale survived. You didn't know that. Sharks are around before trees. You maybe didn't know that. It doesn't matter. But the children are already like, are you joking? Really? So the first thing is that. And then you come to a point in your online lesson where you give them absolute freedom within limits, where you say, now you know X. What are you going to do with it to make the world a little bit better? And there are an infinite amount of opportunities for you to do that. And so ultimately, they take the knowledge they've just gained and you give them complete freedom to be creative. But the valuation of success is that they must use the knowledge they have just gained to make the world a tiny bit better. And that's the only grade point score assessment you're going to give. Did you improve the world? Yes, you did. And I think it's definitely possible online if you have that mechanism in place. You threw out there, you know, freedom within limits or creativity within limits. Do you try to impose very loose limits or do you try to throw obstacles in front to try to make them get around those? Not at all. So, you know, and I've done it so many years being a Montessori principal. You say to the children, you could take the SDGs as an example. There's 17 of them. Pick one. Pick one that matters to you. You know, climate change is a real problem for me. I'm living in Bangladesh. The ocean's rising. This is my land. I'm going to lose it soon. It matters to me. You might be living in Uganda and, uh, you know, girls are sold to 70-year-old men. So gender equality is really mattering to you. So you choose one. And what children want is a modeled example. So rather than telling them, here's a menu to choose from, you say, this is what somebody else did. Use that as inspiration. And every single thing in the world is on the table. You can try anything. You want to plant a forest with 50,000 trees? Do it. Yes, they might fail. They might plant one tree. <laughs> they might plant zero trees. But that journey of discovery and that experimentation and failure is a great way to learn. Awesome, awesome. So, Russell, when you were traveling the world with the kids and, and you know, learning all of these different cultures and stuff, would you try to bring the same lessons into different cultures? Or would you focus your lessons and your learning you know, based on where you were? We give the students three module options. And each module option is designed with local experts. So we would go and... We had to get better at this very quickly because when I joined 12 years ago, we were very much scattergun. Oh, we'll go here. And that wasn't the approach. We had to build local communities in the countries we were going to. And then through that local expertise, we would design three modules which mattered locally to the people in their context. And the students would pick one. But then we tried to layer that further. By then, okay, that would be co-taught by the educators. There's numerous reasons why we need to do that. But then to build off that, then the students could do personal projects on anything. And that was hard because teachers, especially new teachers who would come into our institution, the natural magnetic instinct is to, oh, no, just do that. As principal, it was really hard. No, let them do anything. We had a girl from Thailand who wanted to study the circus. In, sorry, not Thailand, Vietnam. And she was laughed out of her school. And she came to us. And all she wanted to do was the circus. But okay, well, the mathematics behind a trapeze artist. How do you market the circus? She's now in Paris, a theater school. So her way in which she was kind of alienated back home, she was able, as Gavin says, to really take all the limits off her, just let her fly, 
and she found success. This student wasn't damaged. And then we then layer that into the third tier with, I don't like this term, I think personally we need to rebrand it, but the idea of service, service learning, and then whatever the student's design prototype build must be, as you say, then given back, make the world better, or make your local road better, you know, just make something better through the projects you design. So that's how we do it. We keep evolving. As Dave said, you know, the pandemic hit us hard. We probably had the worst business model ever, being the world's traveling school, getting hit with the pandemic, but we survived just. So now, yeah, we've got to learn those lessons. We've got to make our online learning piece better. And we've got to keep making it real for the students of that community where they visit and also where home is and keeping them connected to home as well as we travel. And that's relevant for schools in Dubai who you know, where students are coming in from many different countries and how do you keep connected to where you're from? How do you move to another city and, and keep connected? That idea of connection, I think, has changed a lot in the last, with us moving around a lot more, especially with the pandemic. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. There's so many interesting journeys up here. Simon, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the challenges and successes that you've faced in your journey. If there's any nuggets that you can pass along. You know, I, I think there's so many, within the audience, there's so many schools doing, you know, some are public schools, some are private schools, obviously. I mean, the traveling school, that's crazy. Online learning, you know, COVID threw everything into a blender. What, what's a really, you know, a couple of really good lessons that you've picked up over the last couple of years? Good question. The first thing is don't buy technology. No, no, seriously. And it, it's, you know, this is, this is a technologist. I run a technology company, a creative technology company. But the point is this, is that everything you talk about is about humans, right? We interact between each other. You're using a device, whether it's the webcam, whether it's the online tutoring, or whether, you know, it's Gavin being our first, you know, super teacher, you know, inspiring millions. That's like a dream. Because I'll tell you what, there are not a million inspiring teachers out there. And actually, you talk about entitlement. The people that do get the great teachers are the private sector. And what are they giving back? They talk about partnerships, and I don't believe the partnerships are right. So technology enabled us to get through lockdown. There's no question, right? But let's not use that as the kind of great savior that EdTech saved us. It didn't. Actually, the internet saved us and the, the ability for us to communicate. All of these different providers are there putting out stuff to, you know, it's the magpie effect, really. You know, it sounds shine, it's going to solve all my problems. But these guys have got it absolutely right. And actually what these are doing at the end is phenomenal, really, because that's, to me, a journey that I've been on, as I've seen that in all the four schools that I've had my children at, very different, right? They use the technology during lockdown as a mechanism repository just to upload stuff. Usability was poor, nothing got done, parental frustration, Teachers aren't equipped really to be technologists. We either got to train them to use the platforms or we've got to let them be and inspire the children. So what have I learned? I've learned that I love technology, but I also hate technology because too many schools buy and waste too much money and we need to change the lives of these young kids. David? What have I learned? So 8 billion ideas before we were at 8 billion ideas, we were called 7 billion ideas. So that was a creative uh, name change through the pandemic. And the reason was because we actually dramatically shifted in what we did. So pre-pandemic, we were, you know, the whole idea of the company started from a frustration of not knowing what to do when you come up with an idea. And the planet's population was passing 
7 billion people and I was sitting with a group of friends a number of years ago just coming up with fun, thoughtful and creative ideas and not really knowing what to do next and just said, isn't it crazy that the planet misses out on millions of ideas, if not billions of ideas, every single year because we don't know the next steps and entrepreneurship in particular wasn't really talked about and never heard the word in my education at all. So the company started and we were delivering in-school services, going and creating world-changing ideas, days, doing big, big dream, big lessons, absolutely loved it. One of the challenges that we had was scalability. We were getting interest around the world and we were not sure what to do next on that front, but the business was growing. And then COVID came along, it was Guest 2020, actually left here a couple of years ago, got home and then the KHDA band gatherings here and then the rest of the world kind of followed suit and it was an absolute nightmare. Running a business, I'll tell you what, that's one thing I've learned, Dennis, running a business in a pandemic is like being punched in the face constantly, okay? Any business owners in the room? Well, leaders, yeah, it was like being punched all the time and you had no idea who was punching you. However, there was some great stuff going on in the world. There were some super teachers doing some amazing things online. There was people like Joe Wicks in the United Kingdom doing what he was doing in PE. And I felt there was a light. There was a different way that maybe tech could be embraced post-pandemic. And then the penny dropped for me, really, when I invited a friend of mine called Ian Ketson to join and speak to one of my teams. He's a designer a car designer at Tesla now, and he works for Elon Musk. We used to go to school together. He used to draw cars all the time. He used to get chucked out of chemistry because he was drawing cars. And he just loved it. He, he knew he was going to be a car designer at 11. And he came on and told his story to my team. And I just thought, wow. I thought every child across the planet who was interested in design, engineering, wanting to hear a story of resilience and grit should have heard that story. But he was in LA and told the story for 20 minutes and then cracked on with the rest of his day. And then I was watching what was going on around the world and things were quite remarkable. We were turning to tech and innovation was happening. And that's when we kind of really, the idea for 8 billion ideas was born about, you know, moving into that space and maybe quite maybe, despite feeling like I was being punched in the face a lot, that this could be the answer to us reaching students all around the world. So it was that frustration from scalability, dealing with it and then seeing the world through a different lens. Underpinning all of that, the thing that I've learned I've got a wonderful team, which I know many people have managed to meet a few of them here at the conference, is that I think the single most important thing that any individual can bring to any organization, whether it's a school or business, whatever it might be in the future, is their attitude. Okay, having a positive but relentless attitude, a can-do attitude to make the world a better place today than it was yesterday, that is unique. It doesn't happen every every single one of us. And I think that's what I've learned the most over the last 10 years, is that attitude is the most important thing anyone can bring, indeed, to this planet. That's a great answer. Go ahead, Carl. You mentioned then uh, running a business during the pandemic. Imagine getting your first headship role in a school in February 2020 uh, and then very quickly having to maneuver closing the school and figuring all that out. We were actually very lucky because our model in our school is all one-to-one. So retraining the teachers, as Simon said, was a huge, huge part of what we needed to do because 90% of our business at that time was in person. We did a bit online, but it was mostly in person. That was a real big challenge. I think One of the things that we learned was what Simon was saying about technology, that people need to be trained, and that's not just the teachers, even the school leaders need to be trained in what good technology use is in the classroom, because we get all these buzzwords, metaverse, AI, VR, what are they actually bringing to the classroom, how are they working? I do think technology is ultimately a communication tool, and it should facilitate communication with actual humans. I've heard examples of, let's build a metaverse where we can have a conversation with Einstein, but if Einstein was here right in front of you now, what would you ask him? I studied chemistry. I I wouldn't know what to ask him. I probably wouldn't understand what he said back to me. I think it's not about 
facilitating those sorts of things. It's about facilitating experiences. So a great example that I heard recently was someone had recreated all the courtroom scenes from the Crucible in virtual reality, and you could sit in the docks and and look around and experience and see all this going on. And, And then they took you offline and said, write about it. And it augmented a teacher-led experience that was actually in person, it wasn't to replace it. So I think we need to educate leaders and teachers in what useful technology is, rather than just saying, well, this can replace this experience, or this can replace that, or we're just going to jump on the next kind of buzzword. I mean, we're creating an online school, but it's not going to be AI-driven, it'll be human-driven, but the data is still incredibly important there and that, that's actually where the value to having an online element to any schooling is 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 because the, you get massive amounts of data which when presented to an educator in the right way can be used to personalize an experience and that's what we were talking about earlier about this understanding what creativity is understanding what students actually want out of their education where well, we can get that from that big data but it all has to be displayed in, in, in a way that a human can analyze it but I think the biggest lesson that, that I learned during the last few years and, and building this EdTech project is collaboration. I think early on, I was very precious about what we were doing and I very secretive about it. I didn't really want to tell anyone. And we built a product just over a year ago that we scrapped because it really wasn't doing what we thought it should do. And after that, we opened the doors to talking to other people, telling other people what we were doing, opening the doors to criticism and understanding how other people could plug into our systems. And that's just completely changed the way that we're building it. If I would be open to collaboration and find collaborative partners, because actually building together is the only way we will change the system rather than the delivery mechanism. And I think we're looking a little bit too much in technology about changing the delivery, when actually we should be thinking a lot more about changing the system itself. I agree with everything that's been said, and I especially like the technology thing. Being a Montessori teacher, we don't have technology in class, which is really challenging because we closed our school and said, go home and you're going to learn online now, but we're not going to use technology. There's a computer in the classroom, and it's used in a very individual way, in actual fact. The kids come in the morning, and they plan their day. Everyone has a diary. You've got seven-year-olds are sitting down with their diary, talking to each other and saying, hey, um, what are you going on today? And, you know, the person next to them saying, well, I've actually got a lesson at nine, but at 10, I've got a free period at 10. Well, would you like to continue with our project on dinosaurs? I would. Let's put that in our diary. Um, where are we going to do that? Well, let's use the computer. So they go to the computer and they book it. And there's a timetable. And they're only allowed 20 minutes a day. They can't have any more. And they've got to book that slot, 10 till 10.20. Yep, executive functioning is not just for executives. Seven-year-olds can do it too. So they've got the computer and it's freedom within limits. So then you have to use that at home. There's seven hours of school. And the parents are saying, like, I've got to work at the bank all day. Like, keep my kid entertained. I don't want him coming in the office when I'm trying to be on calls all day. You better be online keeping him entertained like a clown. I want him entertained so he doesn't come in here. Like, keep him busy. So how do you do that in actual fact? Well, you know, our solution, I think that it's a, a perfect solution, is to use the technology in a way that I described earlier, where you use it just as a catalyst to inspire, to set the groundwork. So you just use it for the opening part of the lesson. So they're like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. I've never heard anything like that. That sounds amazing. And then it's closed. Goodbye, off. And they go. They go somewhere in their house, in the room, and they start to make and create or work with their brother or make a phone call or do something. But it's not looking at a screen anymore. It's tangible. You can touch it and feel it. It's emotive. There's mistakes. You're walking around. You're falling over. You've got pain on your fingers. Your fingernails are dirty. You're in the garden. You're picking up snails. Whatever it is that we all love as kids, you use technology as a catalyst, and then you let them go. They come back later. 
and you do it again. It's like spinning a plate, you know, at, at a circus. When it starts to wobble, you need another lesson. If it's spinning beautifully, you just let, let it go. Let them do that for six hours. It's not a problem whatsoever. And I think that's, you know, fundamentally, technology, if you're sitting, looking at a screen for seven hours a day, that is just not healthy. I'm sorry, it's just not good. And so it's obviously a great piece of technology, but you have to use it in a way where you're not going to be looking at the screen all the time. The second point I'd make about choice and what have we learned is don't be a school principal during the pandemic. It's a nightmare, of course. But knowing how powerful your parent community is. So you want to make any change in education, you want to make any change in a school, in a country, don't go to the ministry. Don't go to the head teachers. Don't go to the teachers. You get all the parents in a room and you say, we're going to evaluate your child on essential skills or values because of this. This is why it matters. It's 21st century. It's for tomorrow. It will never expire, whatever it is. And when the parents understand how much worth that is to them and their child and the future of the well-being of the children in the community, they'll say yes. And whatever change you want to make, you can do it when the parents say yes. The principal, the board of directors, they will not argue because parents have all the cards. If they want to leave, they will leave, and the principal will jump if it has to. So I think I've learned very quickly, you want to do something, you get the parents involved as soon as possible. Yeah, I had a load of fancy things to say, and then I was working this morning, and I was listening to some music, and I was inspired by a British band called The Verb. Should have been a big oasis, but they kept fighting, never were. Their most famous song, Bittersweet Symphony, there was three lines in it. I was like, ah, okay, I can change, I can change, but I'm stuck in my mold. I have a million different ideas from one day to the next. And I was like, if you look out here, millions of ideas. Like, we're not short of ideas, but we are stuck in a mold. And that's the problem. And I was talking to a friend of mine over in the US from PBL Works, and he was commenting about testing. And it really struck a chord to me because he was saying, you know, testing is the elephant in the room, and everything follows the tail of the elephant. And it is. For me, it is. I mean, you can have all these grand ideas, but at 16, 17, if you're throwing them back, and it's almost cruel. You have these middle years programs which are creative, exciting. Oh, there, 16, 17, you're back in the testing. You're going to do the diploma. You're going to be facing A-levels. It's a problem. So I think in that mold, we have to change. And I think the feeling, we were talking about it for the last couple of days, there's a real feeling of change in the room from when we were here last year. You can feel it. People are excited. People are motivated. You've got the great work of these guys, you know, all on the stage. And I think we're in a real moment right now where change is happening. People are hungry for it. But there's a few systematic things that we need to really put pressure on, whether it be ministries, parents, organizations. And that's what we're going to do in the next year. And that's the lessons, to go back to your question, Dennis, what we've learned. We're going to come together as a group of progressive schools and really start making some noise. I think the time is now to say, okay, we want change. And if you've got inspection bodies preventing that change, it's almost like, okay, enough's enough. The Netherlands are already doing it. They've got a second tier for progressive schools that they've developed. Like that should be almost universal. You know, even our inspectors are saying, we can't judge TGS, but we know you're doing the right thing, but we, there's nothing to fit you in. There's no cookie cutter inspection model that fits you guys. We've got to start seeing some systematic change and trying to break this mold because there's a million excuses that we fed why the inspection system isn't changing. Why are we still doing exams? I mean, we spoke last year. I think we all thought the exam system was going to really change during the pandemic. It seems to be going back even faster and quicker to the exam system. And that's not good enough. And it, it's like, you know, I live in Dubai. You know, if we can build Expo in the desert, 
we can change an exam system. I mean, it shouldn't be beyond us. So yeah, I think we're going to start making some noise with our partners to say, okay, let's see some systematic change now. Russell, I think you're going to see it. It's bottom up now. We've been waiting for top down for ages. I think the rise of the student voice is positively getting louder. You know, you're seeing more and more petitions. You know, the children are saying, look, we want to learn this and they're just finding ways of doing it. So I think that's what's going to be exciting in the next decade is that is that rise now. We've got to listen to the students, right? We've wanted it. They want it. Parents want it, right? So, you know, that's why it's an exciting time to be in education. Excellent. So we've, we've just got about uh, five minutes left here. So, you know, the last panel, there was a lot of talk about the metaverse and, you know, VR is a powerful technology. I was talking about robotics and AI. So I, I did want to ask you, Simon, and maybe have everybody just chime in here. With the, you know, the, the rise or, or the changes that the metaverse will bring, and, and that can fit, you know, very nicely with some education models and stuff, robotics and AI coming in, your comment with regards to, you know, technology being a challenge or something like that, you know, the same comment over here, which I'm not even disagreeing with in some cases, but looking forward five to seven years and, and recognizing what's happening in the workplaces and stuff, do you see significant changes in your business model, in the education model that you're bringing out, and which technologies do you see as being helpful or a hindrance? Well, I mean, how's technology going to change? I actually wrote a keynote about eight years ago called The Future School Thinking, and there were four circles, one being technology, one being content, one being environment, place, and the other one being people. And you draw these things in perfect harmony. And, but the reality was is that the biggest one was technology because of the magpie effect. Everybody wanted the latest tech. Is that going to continue five to seven years? Absolutely, right? Everyone likes to put in there, we're doing stuff in the metaverse. Who cares? The biggest thing we haven't really adjusted to is this, this reality that we've seen this exponential growth in technology, particularly in the sixth wave of innovation, right? We're in sustainability in this, and it's a really short window. It's gone up. We have not seen the same rate of evolution and we never will do in humans in the last maybe a thousand years. So in the next five to seven years, are we going to change? Well, if we keep buying technology because we believe it's going to change education, we're going to keep falling on our faces. If we believe that technology is a lever, right, it's an enabler for enhancing experiences, then we're on for a winner. To me, technology should be invisible, right? It should just be part of the fabric of what we do. And that's going to be the biggest challenge. So it becomes behavior. I also write a lot around content shock. And content shock is this, this moment in time where the amount of content being produced completely overtakes the rate in which we can humanly consume it. And we probably hit that in the early 2000s. So if you think that we got so much content being produced, we can't humanly do it. So how do we do it? We're all addicted to these things. How do I know what's great content? Content is key, but everyone's selling content. So I think the challenge is going to be curation. You know, how do we get inspirational people being topic-led? Putting Gavin in the North Park is a brilliant idea. And I'm sure he'll use technology to gauge stuff that's there. But it'll just be part of the experience to learn, as opposed to me using Metaverse AI. My 11-year-old son, he has a, an Oculus. He's in VR. He loves VR. And he should absolutely, I think my kids should have access to everything. But I live by three things. The first thing is that we should be informed by data. We should be transformed by tech. But we should fundamentally be led by humans. And that will be unequivocally the same in seven years' time. Well, that would be a good way to end. We've got four more people to talk about. That's a real nice comment. Thank you. Look, I'll go back. Evolution or revolution. Lots of great stuff happening in, in, in education. I think it's the best industry on the planet. Teachers have the ability to create memorable moments on a daily basis. Everybody's education, when you look back, 
it's a pivotal moment. It might be assembly, a speaker, a lesson, which has kind of changed your view on the world. And that's, that's the responsibility we're still going to have in five, six, seven years' time. People often talk about the pendulum swift between kind of SaaS products, software as a service, all this kind of stuff, and services. You know, we like being in the middle at 8Build because I, I like EdTech with a sprinkle of services because students still need to have that connection with the human being to be able to build that relationship. But look, it can be a great enabler and it can give students access to opportunities where they might be limited in a world where two, three years ago by zip code or by postcode. That's the exciting thing about the next few years. But I agree with you, if it's invisible, that's what it should be. You know, but why should we not take opportunity of using inspirational people around the planet to help students have a more global view of the world, to create more experiences, to broaden horizons? I hope we really continue to embrace it. I hope we don't get fearful of it. It doesn't have to be there. And we just have to accept it in a good way, like we do in every industry around the planet. So I think it's that bit in the middle. That's what we try to do. Can I quickly just add that? I mean, you talk about the super teacher. I raised this concept again about eight years when I did the future school piece. And I do truly believe that Gavin's uh, one of the super teachers. It has to be. And they should be just like the Instagrams of YouTube, right? You should be paid millions of pounds, in my view, to actually transform the lives of kids around the planet. That's changing education. It's not about putting in a digital flipboard or a VR set into a classroom with 20 kids. That's got to be the shift. I completely agree with these guys about the educators being the real key to all of this. But as Russell said earlier, we have a, a necessary evil, which is the exams at the minute. They're a, a bit of a tricky customer, especially in something like what we do, where we, we really personalize learning. And that's what I was talking about earlier, about the kind of breadth and the depth. And I think that with the IB going, moving towards a more online assessment, technology can really enhance this ability for us to be able to assess students throughout their courses. I mean, I'm a chemistry teacher and 90% of the kids that come to me to do a one-to-one -one tutorial on chemistry hate it. It's very rare that you go out and do chemistry unless your parents have forced you into it. I really take it as a personal challenge to get them interested in it. And what you find is chemistry is an enormous subject. I studied chemistry at university. I don't know everything about chemistry. And so uh, what you find is that kids are really like one area of it or another. And they're really good at the area that they're really passionate about. But in the minute, our way we assess, there is actually no way to give students credit for the bit that they're good at. And even worse, employers have no idea if you did do well at chemistry, what transferable skills does that actually have for my employment? I mean, the Times Commission just came out and said that seven out of 10 employers just throw away the GCSEs, the A-levels, even degrees for their own form of testing. Isn't testing the thing that education should be really good at? Isn't that the bit that we should be able to say, well, we can tell you what you're good at, we can tell you your skills? And I think for me, where we see this going, we're, we need people who are kind of brave and bold, who are going to set up new exam boards that do something like this. But we also need to break subjects down. Like maths is an enormous subject, but how many people say, I can't do maths? For some careers, you just need basic arithmetic. And a lot of people can actually do that, but will go on to fail their maths GCSE and it will look like they're just incapable. We need to break this down into micro-credentials, have a way to verify it, and I think in the future, have a way to take pieces from different institutions. There's, there's no reason why you might think, oh, well, Carl's school's really great at science. Uh, I don't really like their English course, or they're doing a book that I don't like. And I should be able to take courses from different places and have that build my learner profile that I can then showcase is trusted, it's verified. And employers then can understand exactly what skills those qualifications give and remove this need for extra testing and remove the 
quite worrying statement that they just pay no attention to qualifications whatsoever. I think that's very innovative. I like that. So I had seven graduates go to high school last year from my school, heading off to high school, some of the most prestigious high schools in Sydney. I got all their applications back and they'd all been approved. Not one of them asked for what we call NAPLAN in Australia. NAPLAN's a national testing that happens a bit like SATs in the UK. So I called the principals, friends of mine, I said, hey, you know, uh, how come you didn't ask for their NAPLAN results? And uh, this, uh, David will love this one. One principal said, well, you know, one of your children's walked in my office, looked me in the eye, shook my hand and said, you've been running our own charity for the last two years. So why wouldn't I want a student like that in my school? I don't need any grades. That's part and parcel of it. But I think fundamentally what we're missing, I think this would solve a huge problem in our entire industry, I really do, is trusting our teachers to do the job they are trained to do. You are a professional. So you go to the doctor and you're sick and the doctor gives you a prescription. You don't say, are you sure this prescription is correct? Are you sure it's two a day? Because it's a doctor, so you can oh, trust this guy's a doctor. Yeah, architect builds your house. Are you sure this is the right materials and the angles are correct? You don't do that. But we tell our teachers how to teach. Our parents come to school and tell them how to do their job. Not even teachers, because we've all been to school. So we think, oh, we went to school, so we know what school's like. These guys are professionals. Let them teach. But number two, let them bring their own life and their own experience into the classroom and pass it on to the children. We've all got a past, we've all got a culture, we've all got a heritage. So you're teaching continents, you know, in class. And there's a curriculum on Antarctica. None of us are from Antarctica, but we're all from somewhere. So the teacher comes in and says, I'm from China. We're going to teach continents this term. I'm actually from China. Let me show you these pictures of me on the Great Wall of China. Let me tell you about the Qing Dynasty. And she's like, wow, my teacher's a real human being. And the teacher says, now, you choose a continent that matters to you. And we'll go from there. And it's about giving your children freedom, knowing what they want to do, and letting them go with that. And I think it's absolutely fundamentally important that our teachers are trusted to be able to do their job, and our students are gifted the chance to be able to redirect the curriculum within the limits of the outcomes. Because then, at the very end of that journey, they can still pass the test. Like, tests are tests. We've all have tests. So they're not going to fail. But sustain the barriers, give them the freedom, empower our teachers, and they'll still pass the test, but they'll still have ultimate agency. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and I think we can see what's going to happen. With I think the question was around technology and, and where it's heading. The worry is, yeah, all the kids are going to get a headset, and we're all going to do it. And that's just, again, we keep falling into the same trap. We were talking about before, and I'll give you a plug here, Dennis. You know, we got one of your robots. Our two students from Egypt, two lads, loved it. And we're a boarding school. I'd come into the common lounge and... 11 p.m. I was like, guys, are you going to bed? No, no, we just need to make you do one more dance move. You know, we didn't need a classroom. We didn't need a timetable. They were just engaged. But then did also have two Mexican students who were designing a fashion brand on the side who had no interest in the robot. Yes. And that's going to be the point. Technology is going to fit some students, but it's not going to fit everyone. And if we push everyone towards it, it's going to be another educational whiteboard, if we remember them, which, you know, where we all had them, but there was no software. None of us, me included, had a clue how to use it. But so again, it, it's not one size fits all. We've got to stop doing this with good ideas. Because I think, you know, at the Metaverse for some students and some schools and some organizations will be a good idea, but it won't be good. If I've got my team in Botswana, it's of no use to me. You know, I have to think around that. So again, we've got to be nimble. We've got to trust our professionals. But I do see hope. I'm hopeful. And this conference is and just talking to people is, is giving me a lot of hope over the last 12 months and where we're at as a profession. It's getting better and it's easy to be fearful. It's easy to be negative, but there's people doing great things and we've got to, got to cling to the positives. Dennis, Thank you. can I just intervene there and say that's a really good note to end on 
thank you, there is hope because we've got professionals doing it and inspirational people enabling that to happen. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.